As we come now before the Word of God, please turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read with me, to the book of Exodus in chapter 1. And if you're reading out of your own Bible, put a nice crease in here so that it will fall open to it next week. We're in Exodus chapter 1. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, ah, we know that your word will not return empty. That your word will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. So Lord, would you do that work in us now? Lord, would you teach us from these things how to honor you, how to trust you, how to obey you? Lord, would you guide us by your spirit, open our minds to see and to believe. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is Exodus chapter 1. I think your bulletin says we'll begin in verse 8, which is uh, where we'll begin to look. But I want to read back from the beginning. So we'll start here in verse 1. This is Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, and then Joseph died. And all his brothers, and all that generation, but... The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come. Let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, and the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied." And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is the word of God. Now, last week, if you were here with us, you may remember, and if you're not, let me just summarize. We looked at this opening idea in these first few verses about how the people of God were fruitful and multiplied. This is echoes in our minds, a purposeful recollection all the way back to Genesis 1 and creation, what's called the cultural mandate in the way that God blessed the people that he had made, that they were to fill the earth with all his goodness. 
So just like the Bible, Exodus 1 starts not with a bad situation that God is bringing the people out of, but with a good situation that God will bring the people back to. And this matters because this affects how we view God in relationship to our lives. That we are to see God as one who will bring his people not only out of something, but into something. That God is bringing his people into blessing. But that's not an easy process. So after this opening blessing in these first few verses, now we get to the text that we are here for this morning. We see in verse 8 that some time has passed. We're told that there's a a new king over Egypt. We're not told his name. Uh, We find out that he's a pharaoh. That's a title, not his name in particular. We don't even know exactly when this new king rules. There has been plenty of debate over the scholars over exactly the timing of all these things, which we won't even get into. It's sufficient for us this morning that enough time has passed that Joseph is now completely forgotten. Joseph, you may remember from the time in Genesis, is an Israelite who was once the second command in Egypt. Very powerful, which God used to rescue not only Egyptians, but the whole land from this great famine that came. So now enough time that has passed that Joseph is not known. Joseph is forgotten. This is probably several generations later, even a few hundred years later. We're also told that God was aware of this beforehand. He talks to Abraham back in Genesis about this situation before it even occurs. We hear it in Genesis chapter 15, uh, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions." And this is exactly how things play out now. Uh, We see this in the situation in Exodus that Abram's offspring, the Israelites, are now sojourners in a land that's not their own. They're now in Egypt, and they're in the middle of this 400 years of affliction. Now, I don't know about you, but the choice of the English word affliction here is odd, at least to me. When I hear the word affliction, affliction doesn't sound so bad, you know? Affliction sounds like you got a trick knee that, you know, acts up when the weather's bad. That's an affliction. Or, you know, you've got a, 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 a sister who plays, you know, Justin Bieber on repeat and won't stop. Like, that's just an affliction. You know, it's something that's serious. It's not easy, but I can deal with it. You know, I can handle it. It's bearable. But what we actually see that the affliction becomes or is in the book of Exodus is much rougher than this. If you just scan through for some of the words in the text that we just read, we see there's a description of their taskmasters, that they have heavy burdens, 
that they are oppressed, that they are made slaves. The summary of it is really striking in, in the last verse, verse 14. They made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. That's what we're really meaning by the word afflicted, that they would suffer under ruthless slavery, that their work was really cruel and severe. In fact, the root word for the Hebrew that we translate affliction literally means to break apart. And that's exactly what Pharaoh was trying to do to them, to break them apart. There's a scene in a popular TV show where one of the characters on the show has a birthday. And so another one of the characters, in honor of this person's birthday, puts up a simple banner in the office that just says, it is your birthday, period. And one of the other characters says, you know, what, what, what kind of celebration is this? Like, not even an exclamation point. And the person who put up the banner said, what? It's a statement of fact. It is your birthday, period. You know, we know that this is not typically the way that we speak. You know, even when we talk about someone's birthday, we say, happy birthday. You know, you can hear the exclamation point, which, by the way, happy birthday, Karen and Ruthie. Uh, happiest birthday. Uh, you can feel it when we, uh, when, we, when we say these things. We also write in a similar way. You know, happy birthday, exclamation point. Uh, it, this is true for the Bible writers, too. When Moses writes, he is not just reporting a statement of fact. The slavery was ruthless, period. He's trying to help the reader here feel this, to really get the affliction of this. That as we watch the people of Israel be broken apart, we would feel the injustice underneath it, especially feel that injustice when we look at the motivation for why all of this was occurring in the first place. We see it in verse 10. Here's Pharaoh's motive. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. If war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape. Basically, the Israelites had done nothing wrong. They'd done nothing at all except just have kids, except to just grow in numbers. But to Pharaoh, that was threatening. There's a fear that they would become the new majority. If there's a war, they might join the other side, and we, the Egyptians, would lose our place. The fact that there's too many of them is a risk. And so Pharaoh's going to try to reduce their numbers with a little bit of population control. Eventually, Pharaoh's going to go so far as to kill the babies of the Israelites, which is awful. Uh, we'll look at that scene with the midwives next week. But he's going to try, first of all, a subtle population control. He says, let's deal shrewdly is the wording. Let's be smart about this. Let's be a little more calculated about this. So the slavery then that he enacts is not because the Egyptians needed some work done. We have dishes in our sink, you do our dishes. The reason, the intended effect is that he would shrink the Israelite population with the slavery. 
And he does that in a number of ways. The, there would be physical separation. You'll notice that they built some of these store cities. They were sent, a couple are actually named in here, that he probably sent the men off to build these storage sites, which means that the husbands and wives of the Israelites would have less contact and less opportunity to procreate. <laughs> uh, it also means that if the men are away, there's less time to tend their own flocks, their own fields, which might even send the Israelites into poverty. The work itself was exhausting. It was meant to wear them out. The burdens that they carry were to take a toll on their physical bodies. And even more than that, it was to crush their morale. We're told it was bitter work. And that bitterness would have an effect on their health. And even to add to all those things, the work is dangerous. I mean, brick and mortar buildings, without the use of cranes, without the use of, of machinery and, and all the safety gear and harnesses, there's a good chance that in this work you'll get injured or killed. All of this was calculated. All of this was meant to get Israel under control, that their people would be born later and die earlier. That's the intent. Now, this attempt to control and to get rid of vulnerable people, we can see how this would intersect with some of our modern-day issues. These are usually some of the most controversial cultural issues of the day. These are things that people will get offended by very quickly. I mean, tomorrow... Uh, many people will celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. This text speaks to matters of racism and civil rights. On Wednesday of this week, many people will celebrate the National Sanctity of Human Life Day. This text speaks to matters of abortion and right to life. It deals with some of the heaviest stuff. This text even speaks to a lot of what we hear about uh, in the news in an ongoing way uh, as we wrestle with issues of immigration. Pharaoh's slavery policy here is driven primarily by fear. Fear of losing his power, fear of war, and fear of the foreigner in his own land. And boy, don't we see that still today. Most people, I think, would recognize if we read this story that what Pharaoh actually did with that fear was wrong. I mean, most people would not go so far as to say, yeah, you know, slavery is great. But, but we do hear many people want to preserve some sort of caste system in society. So we hear from some people, you know, okay, I'm, I'm fine with foreigners. I'm fine as long if they're here, as long as they stay in their place. You know, as long as they are only roofers, or as long as they only clean toilets and, and scrub floors, as long as they only work in, you know, maybe factories or fast food or, or fields, as long as they only stick to the brick and mortar stuff. That's the, that's the attitude here. And we, we think, oh, they should just count themselves lucky to be in the U.S. 
Is that the kind of attitude we want to have? To be clear, I mean, these jobs that I've just mentioned are good and respectable work, by the way. Thank you if you do these sorts of jobs. But sometimes these sorts of jobs can be used by some groups to try to keep people down, to try to keep people under a sort of affliction, to keep them in a sort of slavery even, to try to really keep the population under control. If it sounds like this gets a little bit political, that's not my intention, okay? I know that the talking heads on TV, you know, yammer about these things to try to whip us into a frenzy over this so that we'll bite each other over it. But what we're really trying to do is listen to God as he speaks in his word here. You know, we know government policies matter, voting matters, but that's not really my concern here. It's complex as far as what this looks, looks like on a government level. But I care less about what the politicians' approach to this is. I care about yours mine? What is the Christian's approach to these things? It's a good question to be asking ourselves, what does it look like to really follow Jesus in these areas? We should consider whether we are more in line with the Egyptians or with the Israelites. Whether we are more joined with the taskmasters or the bricklayers whether we are more a part of the affliction or the ones who are afflicted. We need to think about that. I'm just going to let that hang in the air. Let it rattle around and let the spirit work on us. I don't want to elaborate on that uh, much. But in the rest of our time, I do want to make three observations that we see here specifically about affliction, because this will help us, all of us, really to walk in holiness in these areas. What can we see about affliction here? The first observation is that affliction can result from blessing. Affliction can result from blessing. Afflictions come from lots of places. And even some of those places we may be responsible for in some way. Sometimes we're responsible, sometimes we're not. Here we see that the source of affliction is Pharaoh's fear, his dread of the people, that God had made Israel too fruitful, too strong, too many. God had really blessed Israel too much, and that made Pharaoh afraid. So slavery is Pharaoh's direct response to God's blessing. The slavery then doesn't come from Israel's disobedience. It actually comes out of their obedience. Sometimes we start to believe if something in our own life begins to hurt, that the source of that hurt must be because we've done something wrong. We start to believe that it must be because God is punishing us for something. 
And that is sometimes the case, but not always, not even often. It doesn't, even, it doesn't help the situation either that there are some preachers, usually the ones on TV, that you know, hammer into our heads that if, you know, if you're really following God, it will always make you healthier and wealthier and happier. And we know that that is just not true. If, by the grace of Jesus, you are really setting your heart to obey God, If that's really the case, affliction will often result from that. If you're really, by God's grace, setting your heart to obey God in taming your tongue, for example, you might lose relationships as a result. Because it will be less fun for other people to gossip with you and to make crude jokes with you. In fact, they may even turn on you and turn you into the new target of the gossip and the crude jokes. Or if we set our hearts really to obey God by God's grace, to be honest in our business practices, you might lose clients. There will be people who subtly want you to help them out, to cheat things just a little, to lie just a little, to take the edge off, to make a little bit more money than we might otherwise. You might lose things if we choose to obey God. And if you set your heart to follow God in trying specifically to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, to create in your life by His grace love and joy and peace and patience, you can bet you'll face affliction from Satan, if no one else. He will fight tooth and nail to stop those things from happening in you, he will stir up in you an ability to notice more of your own sin, to make you frustrated or discouraged by that. And even more so, the Lord will bring you to humble yourself, to come to want to ask for forgiveness from God and from others, and that's going to sting a lot. It's true, it is true that God will bless you as you learn to walk by the Spirit. The scripture speaks about obedience as you know, healing to the flesh and refreshment to the bones, and that's true. But we know it's also true that real affliction may result from God's good blessing. That's the first observation. The second is that affliction is a tool in the hand of God. Affliction is a tool in the hand of God. You may have noticed in the section we just read here in the beginning of Exodus that God is nowhere directly mentioned. He's there, but he's just behind the scenes. It's only as the story of Exodus begins to unfold, as the curtain slowly gets pulled back, that we we get to see the Lord, and it's there that we begin to hear that all of this has happened according to his purposes, so that all the people would know that he alone is the Lord. But we don't see that here. It's later, then, as, as people are reflecting on this, the psalmist in Psalm 105, reflects upon this section of Israel's history in Egypt. Um, in the beginning of the psalm, we, we, we use this morning as our call to worship. It's a celebration of the, you know, the wonders and the miracles and the judgments of God. And then we hear this as part of those wonders. Psalm 105, verse 
23. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob journeyed to the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Did you catch it there? That while the Israelites were in Egypt, the Lord made them fruitful, the Lord made them strong, the Lord also made the Israelites to deal craftily with them. In other words, Pharaoh's plan to deal shrewdly, that plan, even though Pharaoh was not unaware or was not aware of it, really in some sense had come from God. Affliction is a tool in the hand of God. And the Lord uses affliction here not for evil, but for good. It's not to break the people apart, but to bring them back. And I know that this reality, that affliction would be in God's hand, is is difficult for some of us to wrestle with. It is hard. It is easier for us to imagine God as only the fixer of pain and never the inflictor of pain. But we need to recognize that sometimes he does inflict with pain, that affliction is a tool in his hand. Here's why. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I know, So much C.S. Lewis. If you read a a good amount of C.S. Lewis, as I do, uh, you start to recognize his voice. But not in this book. When C.S. Lewis wrote A Grief Observed, it sounds different from his other books. It sounds raw. It sounds fuzzy. Because he wrote this after his wife had died from breast cancer. So in this book, Lewis is not examining affliction from the outside. He's experiencing affliction from the, from the inside. He's moving from those statements of fact, affliction is hard, to feeling it. And the experience of that affliction in some way makes the truth blurrier, blurrier in his mind, but in some ways it makes it uh, clearer. He admits that, uh, you know, pain is hard and scary. One of my favorite lines is when he says... What do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he's good? Have they never been to a dentist? Makes sense. Um, But as he goes through this, he also sees what it means if we believe that God hurts only to heal. He gives us this comparison then here. Listen, he says... Suppose that what you are up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. He says here that affliction is like a scalpel, and it may have a really good use. If if the tool in the hand of God is affliction, we want God to finish the purpose of that affliction so that it can take its full course in us, even if it hurts. 
Affliction is a tool in the hand of God. Third and finally, affliction will not prevail. Affliction will not prevail. We see in this account in the beginning of Exodus that the Pharaoh intended for this slavery to crush Israel, to put the population back under his control, but actually the outcome turns out to be just the opposite. We hear in verse uh, 12, he says, the, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. The affliction is not the end of the story. You know, even if, even if, hypothetical here, even if the Pharaoh had succeeded in curbing this foreign Israelite population, even if he had killed off most of them, which would have been an awful thing, even then, Pharaoh may have accomplished his goal, but affliction still would not have prevailed. It still would not prevail. Because God, through Jesus has made sure that even death is never the last word. At least for his people. Death is never the last word because Jesus, by his own affliction, by his own death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, secured a new life that cannot die. There are a few things stronger and more powerful than affliction. And the greatest of these is the love of Jesus. That no matter how ruthless a slavery we might experience, the love of Christ will always prevail. Paul, in some sense, says, let's put it to the test when he writes this in Romans chapter 8, some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It's the last words here in the chapter, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. He writes this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord is not done yet in Exodus. He will show himself to be the strongest, to be the only God, and his love will prevail. Through even the most ruthless affliction, the Lord will help them and us. Help us and teach us to trust him. Would you pray with me? Hmm. Lord, 
have shown your power in all things, that you are far above even the Pharaoh. He is a creature in your hand. Lord, even though many of these things are beyond us, would you help us to trust your greatness, to persist in affliction even when it hurts. Lord, we know that you are good and that you love and care for us. Thank you for being our God. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.